morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening. Depending upon where you are on this rotating globe, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, when increasingly almost anything can happen. Well, this morning we're going to be talking with someone that I wanted to talk to about the big picture. When I say big picture, I'm talking more than, you know, this solar system, this fire alarm, this galaxy, even more than the local cluster. I mean, the big picture. And we'll get into the details and descriptions of what that means uh, momentarily. Um, my guest this morning is Dr. Michael Sala, who has been heavily involved in the foundation and creation of something called exopolitics. Now, I'm not sure, but I have a feeling that with Paula Harris many years ago, I may have given her the term and that kind of propagated because when I went back east with Robin several years ago to do lobbying on the Hill, I was lobbying very strongly for a new department, uh, a, a, a federal cabinet position. I wanted to raise NASA's profile because of the crucial importance of ultimately coming clean on all the extraordinary extraterrestrial intelligent artifacts that we've now found scattered all over the solar system. And so I wanted, you know, NASA is really only an agency and it used to be under commerce and I kind of lost track because they kind of moved it around in that uh, three-card Monty that they call the federal government. So I'm not quite sure under which cabinet position it's currently uh, residing, but I thought it would be interesting if, in fact, it had its own cabinet-level um, position. Now, administrations relatively recently, the most recently George W. Bush with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, can create, through an act of Congress, a new, brand new, never existed before cabinet positions. And the, the, the benefit of a cabinet position is you get a lot more attention. You get a bigger budget, you get more attention politically, you're taken more seriously when you testify on the Hill in terms of budgets and programs and in years and out years and all that. So as space is going to become crucial, central to the future history of the United States, as you're going to hear uh, this morning, I was actually back uh, there with Robin some years ago going from office to office, Senate office building, House office building, you know, senators, congressmen, visiting mostly Republicans because they controlled the House and the Senate in those years, arguing for a new cabinet-level uh, relationship between NASA and the rest of the federal government. And I wanted to call it kind of mirroring the Department of the Interior the Department of the Exterior. I mean, think about that. We're talking not only ancient artifacts and extraordinary technology and huge uh, opportunities and problems for national security, but we're also talking resources. We're talking mining. We're talking looking and, and kind of, you know, deconvolving ancient technologies, stunning ancient technologies. I felt absolutely confident that at some point, I still do, NASA will be elevated as things progress, as uh, Michael and I are going to discuss tonight. Michael will progress ultimately to the Department of the Exterior. 
So it was a small step, as I was talking with Paula one day, to talk about, you know, the whole field of UFOs, which have gotten a really bad rep over the last several years, decades. And, you know, there's a lot in branding. There's a lot in a name. So I was suggesting that, like I was, you know, trying to rebrand NASA as a cabinet-level department equivalent to the Department of the Interior covering the solar system and beyond, the Department of the Exterior, that in fact the whole field of ufology, of extraterrestrial relations, of all of that, should have a whole new name. So it seemed logical, and I, I, I believe I suggested to uh, Paula that it was uh, probably useful to think in terms of exopolitics as opposed to normal politics, and for the life of me, I haven't been able to run down an email or actually put it in print. So Michael and I can maybe argue about who came up with the term tonight, or maybe not. Uh, for those of you who are new to the show, let me tell you what we do. We do little news at the top before I bring on my guest. Tonight, of course, the major news is the tropical storm slash potential Cat 3 hurricane bearing down on Florida. And so the Artemis One managers, this will take you to the first news item tonight. And if you don't know how to get there, let me tell you. You go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our uh, URL. Click on tonight's banner, which says rather provocatively, UFOs over Ukraine, exploring a much bigger picture with Dr. Michael Sala. Click on that banner. That will take you to his guest page. Right under the guest page, you'll see where it says Fast Links to Items, uh, the banner at the top there. Click on my name. That takes you down to Radio with Pictures section of the page where my items are listed. Item number one is the latest information from the Artemis program at NASA headquarters. The Artemis managers, because of the impending hurricane, Hurricane Ian, which although when this was written, they were deciding whether to do the rollback, they're they're actually waiting till tomorrow to decide to roll this stack back. There are upsides and downsides to rolling the entire rocket, the SLS rocket and the Orion spacecraft on top of it, back to the vehicle assembly building, a several mile journey, takes them most of a day to do it. There are vibrations, if you don't, want to, if you don't need to roll back, rolling back unnecessarily puts stresses and strains on the vehicle, you know, wear and tear, every little thing counts. So you'd rather sit in place. The problem is that sitting in place during a hurricane, particularly if it, uh, the winds at the Cape are up around a Cat 1, uh, 75 miles an hour or greater, uh, you really don't want that. So they're looking very seriously at rolling back. They're in touch with the Weather Service, with uh, um, Space Command, and the decision will be made tomorrow. At any rate, it looks like there's going to be a complete wave off of the launch opportunity on Tuesday, on the 27th. And if they do decide to roll back, it, they may not even be able to make the October 2 uh, next window. So we will keep you apprised of all that, and you can find out what's the latest, even if we're not on the air by simply going to link number one in tonight's Radio with Pictures. This week, far out in space, several uh, million miles away, around six million miles away, there is a stunning mission, a NASA mission, an unmanned mission, which is proceeding on Monday evening and around 7.14 Eastern Daylight Time. 
NASA is going to slam in an unprecedented fashion a very heavy spacecraft called DART, D-A-R-T, which stands for uh, double, uh, let's see, actually the acronym keeps, uh, keep, uh, keeps avoiding me. Um, it is called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, D-A-R-T. And what they're going to do is try to move one asteroid that's orbiting a much bigger asteroid uh, so that it can be detected as an anomalous motion from the Earth. The technology is called kinetic impact, and it will all begin around 5 o'clock Eastern on Monday afternoon. That's tomorrow afternoon, culminating around 7.14 Eastern with the actual impact. Now, because the asteroids called uh, Didymos and Diamorphos, uh, parent and satellite, orbit each other every 11 hours, 55 minutes, because they're relatively close to Earth, only about 6 million miles away at this encounter, the speed of light time to bring the images and radio signals back from the spacecraft to Earth is around 38 seconds. So we will see this unfolding in almost real time. So you want to set your recorders to fast. You want to record everything because it's going to go by quickly. You're going to want to replay it. But then there's, after the actual impact, there's going to be, I think, a 90-minute uh, NASA TV uh, production uh, featuring the background of the mission, what they've intended to do, whether the impact actually occurs. It probably will. And then, of course, there'll be a long period afterwards of many weeks and months of observation by ground-based uh, observatories to see if, in fact, the impact on uh, Didymos, I'm sorry, on uh, Diamorphos, uh, which is a smaller satellite. The, the big asteroid is around 2,500 feet across. The little satellite is around 300 feet across, weighing a lot, lot, lot less. So slamming a major spacecraft weighing, you know, like a thousand pounds or more into it at 14,000 miles an hour is supposed to have a detectable effect. However, things get really interesting when you start realizing what some of these so-called asteroids actually might be. Because we have data, very supportive, very strong, very uh, compelling data, that NASA has been flying by uh, a number of these objects and calling them asteroids when in fact they are neither asteroids or comets. They are ancient, long-abandoned, millions of years old, ancient spacecraft orbiting the sun and or habitats, ancient super megalopical kind of cities, uh, space habitats of maybe several million people orbiting the sun. And so when you photograph them, as NASA has done, what you see is remarkable geometries that should not really be present if these are just natural rocks orbiting the sun, which has been the standard model for the last several tens of decades uh, uh, pertaining to asteroids orbiting Sol. Now, recently NASA rendezvoused with an asteroid called Bennu, and that's item number three, because among other things, they photographed it in exquisite detail, and there's a 13-minute video in item number three, which shows their touchdown and sample collection of materials 
retrieved from the surface of Bennu, which are now en route home by means of a returning spacecraft. And I believe they're supposed to land somewhere in Utah, I think sometime next year. I haven't checked the, the timeline on this, but relatively recently, those samples, which will be the first the U.S. has actually returned from an asteroid, will be on the ground and available to exquisite very high-precision terrestrial scientific uh, analysis techniques, including mass spectrometers and nuclear uh, radioactive decay, isotopic measurements of time and age and all that, as well as very precise measurements of chemical composition and experiments looking for organics or uh, organic molecules, amino acids, and maybe even DNA. So that's all in the future, but if you look at that video... Uh, which is item number three, and you click on it, about six minutes in is the actual slow motion video of the sampling that the uh, OSIRIS-REx spacecraft did when it did its so-called touch and go, where they hovered over the asteroid surface, they then fired thrusters to move toward the asteroid or down. They had a very long sample collection arm, and when the sample collection arm uh, touches the surface, all hell breaks loose. I mean, it's really astonishing to see all the activity in the relatively low, very, very low gravitational field of Bennu. Here's the problem. The way the DART experiment is designed to perform is that if there's an asteroid at some point in the future headed on an inbound trajectory to impact the Earth, the idea was that NASA would send one or more spacecraft like uh, DART uh, on intercept trajectories and by slamming into the offending asteroid either once or multiple times with multiple spacecraft at very high velocity, the kinetic energy transfer is supposed to basically shift the asteroid moving toward the Earth just a little bit. And that change of motion will change the time when the asteroid crosses the Earth's orbit, it only has to change it by a few, you know, centimeters per second, if, if even less, maybe millimeters if there's enough time, and over a period of weeks and months, and sometimes, depending upon the asteroid, years, that incremental change due to the kinetic energy of the impacting object will be enough to change a collision with Earth and an asteroid to a miss, which, of course, is exactly what you want. The test of all that, the celestial mechanics, the energies, and most intriguing, the actual composition and surface texture of the asteroid are what the mission tomorrow afternoon is going to measure. Because the way these calculations work, we're assuming that there's hard objects. These are solid objects made of rock. And when you hit a rock, you know, it deflects because all the energy goes into changing the overall motion of the rock, not rearranging material inside. However, if you look at that Bennu video, when the OSIRIS-REx sample arm touched the surface, all kinds of incredible things happened, debris, chunks flying up, bouncing around, colliding. In other words, the surface of Bennu was not solid, like a granite boulder, but it was basically a sea of unknown depth and unknown composition 
composed of separate objects that when you impart kinetic energy, they all bounce and bounce and bounce around and collide with each other. And instead of the energy going into redirecting the entire asteroid, it might be that Dart's energy is absorbed inside uh, Diamorphus like trying to fire a bullet into a pillowcase full of feathers. There wouldn't be much damage on the surface because the feathers would absorb ultimately the energy of the high-speed bullet. Well, suppose that um, Diamorphus is like Bennu and not a solid rocky surface or like a steel ping-pong ball in a pinball machine where collisions obey kind of, you know, action and reaction and geometry and angle of incidence equals angle of reflection and all that. Suppose, like Bennu, the energy of the DART spacecraft is merely engulfed and absorbed and redistributed inside. So, in fact, there's almost no, if any, detectable change in the velocity of Diamorphus around Didymos, the larger object, at all. What would that do to the mainstream models which say that these are just rocks orbiting the sun, origin about four billion, four and a half billion years ago in the so-called solar nebula? What if, in fact, Diamorphus and Didymos are, in fact, two very, very large ancient spacecraft derelicts, one orbiting the other, and when you impact DART into the satellite, the smaller object, the 300, you know, football-sized spacecraft, in fact, the energy will simply go to rearranging material inside, shattering rooms and bulkheads and all kinds of other junk. So ultimately, the change in velocity and thereby the change in orbit of Diamorphos around Didymos may be very small, much smaller than the models, or maybe not even detectable at all, which raises a really interesting question. Is the DART mission of ultimately developing a system to protect Earth from errant asteroids, in fact, another NASA cover story? Are they, in fact, using a kinetic projectile, the satellite, the DART spacecraft, are they, in fact, performing the experiment to see, by reaching out literally and touching at 14,000 miles per hour, the diamorphos so-called asteroid satellite to see if, in fact, it's not a rocky asteroid at all, but, in fact, an ancient ancient spacecraft. And that's why you want to watch very carefully, not just the event itself tomorrow afternoon or evening, if you're on the East Coast, you want to watch what happens in the days and weeks and months afterwards, because my prediction is, if these in fact are two additional ancient spacecraft, like Bennu and Ryugu and the other objects that NASA and the other space agencies have just happened to photograph that do not look like rocks, then this could be a clandestine test to see if, in fact, these are really ancient, derelict, and extraordinarily old spacecraft. And we, who of course are not privy to what they're saying inside, 
will be able to tell the difference if in fact there's little or no change in the orbital period of 11 hours, 55 minutes, uh, around once for diamorphos, if in fact it's much less than the 10 minutes that they are predicting on the solid rocky asteroid model. Now, that's not the only interesting thing that's happening this week. Um, on Friday, the Juno unmanned spacecraft, which has been orbiting uh, Jupiter for the last several years, is going to make a very close pass just a few hundred miles away of the amazingly interesting moon Europa. Remember, it was Europa many years ago that I predicted would have an under-ice ocean in print. Uh, 38, 9, 40 years ago, I forget how many years ago, which now, of course, NASA has ultimately confirmed. And in that ocean, there could be living life forms. We won't know until the uh, Europa Clipper mission gets there in the next few years and goes into orbit and actually sends a spacecraft down to the surface. But the Juno flyby is equipped with instruments that, in fact, through indirect remote sensing means, might be able to tell us if, in fact, there is life within that ocean beneath the ice and even what kind of chemistry that life could be composed of. And that's, of course, going to take place on Friday. And over the next several months, the data will wind its way through the system and will ultimately be published. And so you're going to want to kind of keep a watch on that. So this coming week in space is very interesting, starting on Monday evening when the DART mission culminates in the hopeful to uh, the asteroid deflector crowd uh, redirection by about 10 minutes of the orbit of Diamorphos around Didymos, this twin asteroid. The, the names mean twins. So we will be watching very carefully. Item number four. As you obviously have been following, uh, the, the Ukraine war is not going well for Russia, and Putin's language has been upped steadily. There now is a mainstream Russian television report that uh, uh, with nuclear war given, uh, everyone would be destroyed, and it's a very disturbing story. It's like there's more provocative language coming out of the Kremlin, coming out of Putin, coming out of the uh, Russian state television covering it than I have seen frankly, since the 1950s, when uh, Stalin, you know, was in charge uh, as a prelude to uh, what came after. Item number five, the backdrop to all of this, of course, is there is an ongoing political process taking place in Washington, which is slowly putting in place apparently real structural political levers to bring disclosure of the so-called hidden UFO reality into public domain, into general consciousness, into government acceptance and admission of what they have been sitting on for the last 50, 60, 70 plus years. The author of this column in number five, who is a, a very mainstream guy, just go and look at his byline and look at the bottom at his credentials, he is proposing that because a very important political deadline is coming due literally on Halloween, that is October 31, 2022, just five weeks from tonight, that in fact this could be the year of the most astonishing October surprise of all. 
And what does he mean by that? Well, it turns out that in the 2022 National Defense Authorization Act, this is the annual budget for the Department of Defense and all the other security agencies uh, that is voted on by both House and Senate, then sent to the president for signature. Uh, Back at the beginning of the year, after uh, positive votes in both House and Senate, the NDAA for 2022 was sent to President Biden, and he signed it. In the current NDAA, which is huge because it covers, you know, like an $800 billion budget, almost a trillion dollars is spent by this nation every year on national defense. And we're not in a Cold War anymore. And there's no hot wars that are warranted for that level of expenditure. But the military-industrial complex must have its due. And so annually, we're spending almost a trillion dollars on defense. Two senators in the last NDAA, uh, Kristen Gillibrand and Marco Rubio, Democrat and Republican respectively, authored, co-authored a very extensive amendment to the 22 NDAA, which basically encodes in law a whole series of procedures for conducting open studies of unidentified aerial phenomenon, i.e. UFOs, and all kinds of other ancillary things that go with it, including trying to solve the question, who is building them? Are they ours or are they theirs? And by theirs, I don't mean China, Russia, or Iran. I mean there's someone upstairs, someone beyond the earth. All of this in the first annual report mandated by the Gillibrand Rubio Amendment will come due, will become public on or slightly before Halloween of this year, just five weeks away. And that, in turn, is only eight days before the midterms, the major election for House and Senate, which is occupying everybody's political attention, both in Washington and all over the nation. Will the one, will the revelation of really interesting breakthrough information coming from the publication of this first annual UAP report mandated of the Pentagon by congressional action, will it in fact open up a Pandora's box of stunning realities and implications which could completely change the political tenor of the midterm elections? So far, the idea of UFOs and UAPs and you know further study and, and a Pentagon office devoted to all domain anomalies and things like that, it's been pretty... Uh, bilateral. It's been pretty even-handed. Republicans and Democrats, no party has seen any advantage uh, in terms of current information. If there are some really astonishing revelations encoded in the information that, again, by law, must be made public before Halloween, before October 31st, then just maybe this will be the beginning of some kind of, what should I say, um, effort to garner some kind of political advantage by one side or the other. There's no real way to predict this at the moment. 
they seem to be pretty fairly balanced between Republicans and Democrats concerned with these issues. And the national security angle, was ever thus, uh, seems to be holding sway. So both parties are approaching this in terms of ultimate national security concerns, which are pretty bipartisan most of the time. However, depending upon the level of information that's revealed and the implications for further information, that all could change. So with that as backdrop, we're going to be talking with my guest tonight, uh, Dr. Michael Sala, who, as I said, was heavily involved in the creation of this whole new field of study called exopolitics. And until the, the break at the bottom of the hour, I think it's time to play Karen Carpenter, who kind of said it so well many decades ago. This is the ultimate hope of many following the UFO UAP controversy. Karen, give it a whirl. We shall return. In your mind you have capacities you know to telepath messages through the vast unknown Please close your eyes and concentrate With every thought you think Upon the recitation we're about to sing Calling occupants of interplanetary craft Of interplanetary Most extraordinary craft Calling occupants Of interplanetary craft Calling occupants Of interplanetary craft Calling occupants Of interplanetary Most extraordinary Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership cost $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Falling occupants of interplanetary craft. Falling occupants of interplanetary craft. 
And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, September 25th, 2022. I mean, that really is the question, right? If there's a whole bunch of folks out there, and I think the evidence is now pretty convincing that there are, what is their relationship to us? I mean, most of the models that I've seen going back decade after decade is that, you know, you're dealing with aliens. They've never been here before. They wander by, they see this struggling, primitive, very warlike technological civilization bent on, you know, destroying as many of their neighbors as possible. And they kind of drop down to check us out and see if there's anything that they can learn or that's salvageable or whatever. And there's all kinds of individual encounters that are in the literature. UFOs that are stranded, UFOs that, that land and there's contact between individuals and the occupants of these incredibly flying vehicles but there's never an admission that there's official connection between our governments on earth and any of the individuals or governments out there except kind of at the margins and my guest this morning dr michael sala has been kind of devoting most of his uh, professional career to trying to sort out the real from the unreal at the margins. Has there been official contact? Are we part of some much extraordinarily larger reality where the real life, the normal, everyday, mundane politics and economies and even the warlike behavior of these fractions nations is all kind of a subset to a much grander picture, a much larger reality and the two never meet. There's no missability between the larger extraterrestrial reality in which the Earth is immersed and the everyday, ordinary, mundane, middle-class life that most Americans and now an awful lot of the world enjoy oblivious to the fact that there may be another reality. In fact, multiple levels of reality that are going on all around them, of which they are totally, totally in the dark. That's the backdrop for this song. So without further ado, let me introduce my guest of the morning, Dr. Michael Sala. I have to do a couple things here, like change pots and change screens. And, you know, this is what they used to call being busier than a one-armed paper hanger. Dr. Michael Sala is an internationally recognized scholar in global politics, conflict resolution, and U.S. foreign policy. He has taught at universities in the United States and Australia, including American University in Washington, D.C., and today he is most popularly known as a pioneer in the development of the field of exopolitics, the study of the main actors, institutions, and political processes associated 
with extraterrestrial life. Michael's been a guest on more programs you can shake a stick at. He has an Amazon bestseller called The Secret Space Program series, which has made him a leading voice in the truth movement, and over 5,000 people per day visit his websites for the most recent articles and updates on the very subjects that we're going to be talking about tonight. So without further ado, Michael, come on down. Thank you, Richard, for that introduction. I'm really looking forward to the show tonight. Well, so am I, because I, I want to start at square one. I want to start with who is Michael Sala? At what point when he was growing up, did he look around and say, wait a minute, they're not telling me the truth? When was your moment of epiphany that changed the well, rest of your life? That happened in May of 2001. I was at the time a full-time professor of international politics at American University in Washington, D.C., and I saw the Disclosure Project press conference organized by Stephen Greer. And I, like many people, thought that the existence of extraterrestrial life was very likely and that they existed out there, but I had no idea that they were visiting the Earth and that was being covered up. And so uh, Stephen Greer had approximately 20 witnesses talk about what they knew directly. And when I heard that, I thought, wow, this is incredible. If this is true, that would change the field of international politics, which, of course, I was a specialist in. And I was teaching graduate students. It was a, a master's level program. And these students were paying in excess of $30,000 a year. Oh, to... my God. <laughs> Even then. Exactly. Yeah, they're, they're paying that much to get a master's degree in international peace and conflict resolution. So I thought it was natural that I would investigate whether or not this was real and whether it had any implications for the study of international conflict. And as so I So what, 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 this was what, 2001 you said? In 2001, yeah, middle okay. of 2001. And, and I actually introduced it into one of my courses at the time. Hmm. So this was before 9-11? Exactly, yes. This was uh, in the middle of 2001, so I, I watched St uh, Greer's Disclosure Project press conference. I thought, well, this is incredible. I need to introduce this into into my uh, teaching. And so I actually introduced it into a summer class that I was holding at the time uh, that began in June of uh, 2001, and I actually presented the Disclosure Project press conference to my graduate class. And I showed them one hour of the, the first hour of the show. And then I asked the students, well, what do you think of this? You know, if you agree, let's form a line. And if you agree and that this is real, that there's a cover up of this UFO phenomenon, you know, stand on the right side of the line. If you think that it's a, if it's total nonsense and there's nothing to it, then stand on the left side of the line. And if you're undecided, stand in the middle. Well, of that class of 25 graduate students, only two people thought it was real. The other 23 were either undecided or just thought it was a whole lot of baloney. And, and that really was a sign of what I was going to face from my academic peers and the students uh, as I persisted in my effort to like study this UFO phenomenon. 
So did you incorporate any of the material we kind of call ufology into any of the uh, coursework that you were doing with these students? Yes, I did. I included it into uh, the curriculum of a a course called uh, Theory of Conflict, Violence and War. Uh, So that for one week in that uh, there were uh, 14 uh, weeks in that compressed summer course and I talked to them about this UFO phenomenon and got their reaction to it. Uh, But then what happened was that I got a lot of pushback from the university that they that they did not want me to investigate this any further and and also that was a time of of a transition for me where i decided that well you know this is so important that i'm going to start to research this and so i'm not going to take on another full-time teaching load i'm just going to be a researcher and so i made an arrangement with the Center for Global Peace at American University to give me a uh, an appointment, a 12-month appointment as uh, a researcher in residence, which was kind of like a, um, it wasn't a full-time paid position. It was just a researcher status at the university, which would enable me to kind of like find what it was I wanted to do because I was an international relations scholar that's what my degree was and all my publications and research was in international relations. And here I was kind of like caught in the middle of this phenomenon of UFOs and trying to work out, well, is this real? Is this something I should talk about in my classes? Should I introduce it to the university um, studies? And so, so we decided that, okay, it would be best for me to just start this uh, position of a researcher in residence which would enable me to renew my visa because I was uh, I'm a foreign national in the United States so I have to have I had to have a, a visa every year renewed so that I could be legally in the United States and so that's what what, what we did with the university so I then be beginning in uh, on September 1st of 2001 I'm a, a researcher in residence and now I'm looking at this UFO phenomenon as a a kind of full-time researcher while being within the Center for Global Peace. Hmm. So when you presented this to your students, did you you simply present the the, uh, government data, uh, Project Blue Book, some of the other studies, uh, the, the APRO and MUFON and all that, or did you delve it all into the potential political structure of extraterrestrial entities that might in fact be secretly, clandestinely interacting with the governments of Earth. How far did you take it to begin? Well, I just showed the students, it was a two hour class and the first hour I just showed them the video, the first hour of the Disclosure Project video that was shown at the National Press Conference in May of 2001. And the second hour, we discussed it, you know, whether or not this was truly a phenomenon that was underway and the UFO issue was being covered up. So we didn't go into that because, quite honestly, at that time, I I had no idea about the history of ufology. I mean, all I knew at the time was that, you know, there were these 20 witnesses 
that were part of a press conference where they discussed this cover-up of UFOs. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. This needs to be looked at closely. And so that's when my journey began. And really, it's uh, even now, I mean, what are we talking, 21 years later, <laughs> I'm still still on that journey. Okay, so how long did you teach this, this course? Uh, I began teaching... Uh, courses at American University in uh, 1996. So, well, no, I'm, I'm I'm talking about the UFO thing in 2001. How long? Uh, did, how long did that course go on? Uh, it was just one summer course in 2001, and after that, I then reverted to a, uh, a full-time research position. So I stopped teaching courses because I wanted to focus on research. Okay, so see, this is where I'm heading. You did a poll at the beginning, and you had like 28 students, and only two really took it seriously, and the rest were either undecided or, come on, you got to be kidding. Did you do a similar poll after the summer course with the same students? No, I oh, never did darn. that. Well, I mean, they, 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 at the... They just watched the Disclosure Project press conference that happened earlier in May of that year. Right. And so I, that was just one week out of a 14 kind of week course that was compressed into a summer course. So I didn't have that opportunity to do a follow-up and, and I didn't teach that course a second time, which would have been interesting if, if I did, because then I could have asked again, see what the what, if there were any was any change. Well, yeah, if you expose students to new data, the one of the criteria of teaching is that you have an effect that you, you, they, they will learn something and they will, you know, put aside their biases and try to look at really interesting information, even if it conflicts with what they already think they know. And you didn't get any data on on the impact of the course on those students, I take it. Um, not other than what they had to say immediately after watching that one hour video of the Disclosure Project press conference. So you did your poll before you showed them anything? Oh, no, I did the poll after I showed them ah, the okay. one-hour uh, segment. So, you know, uh, they they went into this cold just as I went into this cold because it was, it was fresh. It was quite new. I mean, we're talking about uh, me teaching a summer course at American University in June of 2001. Only a month after the Disclosure Project press conference was held at the National Press Club, press club in Washington, D.C. So it was all very new to me. I, I had no history in ufology, absolutely had no idea who Stanton Friedman was and <laughs> had no idea of, you know, who was Richard Hoagland and the monuments of Mars and the Viking. I had no idea of all of that. I was just a, a conventional scholar that was like, well, these people, they strike me as telling the truth that there's this cover-up going on and so I need to really learn more about of, it. You really kind of exemplify the concept of the ivory tower. You were in your tower and nothing else was kind of important. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it truly is an ivory tower it, it, because I, like all of the others in the ivory tower, you know, we are told if you want to get uh, a full-time position, if you want to get uh, – uh, if you want to get promoted, uh, if you want to advance, then you got to only cite peer-reviewed journals 
and read books published by academic presses. If you start reading books that are published by uh, popular publishing houses or uh, start citing articles that do not come from peer-reviewed journals, well, that's your, uh, you're going to sacrifice your academic career. So, yeah, the ivory tower, you know, those are the walls, peer-reviewed journals and mm. academic publishing houses. Okay, so the summer of 2001 is over, 9-11's happened. You decided to become a teaching, uh, I'm sorry, a, a research assistant as opposed to a, a professor or teacher at the university. Kind of share your learning curve. As you got into this, what were some of the high points that made you realize, wait a minute, there's something really interesting going on here that we're not being told about? Well, I mean, I realized that at the very beginning when I saw the Disclosure Project press conference that something is being covered up, uh, that this UFO phenomenon, there's something to it. And the more I researched it, the more I started to peel back the different levels of the onion. And uh, I was just amazed at the, the level of how far this goes. And And the more I dug into it, the more I realized that there was a whole secret world that dealt with the extraterrestrial phenomenon. And it wasn't just UFO sightings. It was full-blown meetings and negotiations and agreements being reached with extraterrestrial visitors. Yeah, and, and that was like the my steep learning curve that it went far beyond just, you know, lights in the sky, UFOs are up there and holy cow, they're real. It went into... Yeah, they're, they're meeting the, the the pilots of those craft which are landing, getting out and meeting with military and government officials. And so, reach. so you discovered that through sources, and we'll get to that in a second, that there was a real three-dimensional interaction between a civilization or civilizations upstairs and governments and civilization here on Earth that, again has been incredibly effectively isolated from everyday, normal, mundane reality for 99.99% of people all over Earth. Totally, exactly, yes. That there, there has been this ongoing set of interactions with the pilots of the of those craft, extraterrestrial pilots of those, and, and that what we are observing is the product of a rules-based system that the the occupants of those UFO craft are observing certain rules in terms of how they interact with the primitive species like Earth, uh, like human humanity. That we don't have, uh, you know, one mile or ten mile long motherships suddenly appearing and hovering over major cities. And it's like, well, why is that? If like, this is being like, going like like an Independence Day. Yeah, exactly. So why is that? Why aren't they doing that? Because their technology is so much more advanced than ours, and it's and they've been doing this since we know, uh, you know at least going back to the 1942 Los Angeles air raid. Then why don't they just appear? Because uh, this is the rules-based system that they operate under. That they have a certain whether we call it the prime directive, that they can only operate under certain guidelines, and of course they are meeting with and negotiating. Well, let me terms let, let, let me behavior. stop you there because a lot of people, particularly as more and more people are turning to 
the idea that this weird, flaky, off-the-wall stuff is real, which really boggles a lot of minds. They're, they're looking at government as the problem. Oh, these guys are not telling us the truth. These guys have been lying to us. It's under their control, under the First Amendment or under the Constitution to make this reality part of our reality so we can make intelligent political decisions. And they're not loving us at any level. I, I, I want to back up and kind of look at this from 30,000 feet. Is it your position that the cover-up beginning most recently from 1947 onward was really in the hands of the extraterrestrials and at no time is under the purview or aegis of any terrestrial governments? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Uh, Definitely they have the power to suddenly reveal themselves in in their craft, Uh, but to do so other than just allow their craft to be photographed and people then debating whether or not this is a genuine phenomenon or not. And that appears to be something uh, indicating that, you know, they, I think there's two kind of like answers to that. One is that their, their own terms of engagement or their, their own prime directive in how they interact with a less developed species such as humanity. And secondly, how our governments and militaries have communicated and negotiating, negotiated with the visitors exactly how they should behave in terms of revealing themselves with the rest of humanity. So, and, and well, I think if I understand you, you're saying that the extraterrestrials have a stake in not letting most of the planet know that they're here. And the governments of Earth have a co-equal stake in participating and aiding and abetting in the cover-up so their own citizens don't know that this reality is going on. So basically, the only folks that are not in the loop are the people on Earth who pay all the bills to make any governments work anywhere on the planet. That's exactly right, yes. Uh, we, we're talking about the extraterrestrials themselves, the uh, national security officials, typically from the Department of Defense and the intelligence community who lead these negotiations. They're in the loop. Uh, the rest of us, uh, those in the, uh, in the, especially the elected representatives, they're kept out of the loop. Aside from the heads of the defence and intelligence committees, uh, we're talking about the the ranking member and the chair of the defence and the intelligence committees in the House and the Congre- uh, in the House and the Senate. They know. They've been briefed to a certain extent, but everyone else in Congress has no idea. They're not read in. So, yeah, by and large, the U.S. Congress, as well as uh, the mainstream media and the rest of the public, has no idea that there have been these agreements reached between the military intelligence community and the visitors. So it's in the interest of both parties, and I'll use governments of Earth to represent one party, and extraterrestrials as the other party. It's in their interest on both sides to keep most of us dumbed down like mushrooms in a basement eating you-know-what so that there's no real pressure from governments of Earth to represent their citizens 
and open the door on this reality. Is that a fair statement? Well, well, yes. I think on on the part of the extraterrestrials, I think that they have done what they feel is the responsible way of doing things. Let me me stop you there because you say qualitatively, I think, I believe. Don't we have data? See, if we're dealing with real politics, politics is always self-serving. Politics start with what's good for my side and that I can get the other side to agree to. So if we, if we basically take Gene Roddenberry and the prime directive out of the equation and we look at extraterrestrial entities, governments, individuals, institutions, whatever fraction uh, is going on out there in terms of multiple species, multiple planetary systems, you know, galactic councils, whatever the, the governmental structures that we're interacting with are, how do we know that their hands-off approach is in fact uh, beneficent, meaning for our well-being, and not frankly to better allow them to exploit what is going on on Earth, which is an incredibly primitive situation both technically and politically, culturally and morally, compared to what could be going on out there? Well, I would say it's a kind of like a deductive argument that we look at they having this advanced technology enabling them to travel from a different solar system, light years to the Earth, and then not revealing themselves to the rest of the planet. That Why, why, why would they do that? Why would they travel light years displaying a technology way beyond our present capabilities, which would enable them to essentially take over the planet at a heartbeat, but not reveal themselves publicly. Well, you know, the, I think the, the answer logically is that they have reached agreements with our military intel- intelligence or, leaders. Or we, humanity, all seven billion of us on Earth, possess something that they need not physically, but at some other level, some other, I'll use the word dimension, some other capacity that they do not have. And by revealing themselves en masse, they would destroy the very essence of that which they need from us in our unawakened state. 30 seconds. Has has that ever been discussed? Uh, Well, I know that one of the things that apparently they're very interested in is human genetics. I mean, the abduction phenomenon verifies that. So then would they interfere with our genetic evolution if they openly reveal themselves? Okay, hold, hold it there. We're at, the, we're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Michael Sala, and we're grappling with what to me has always been the most baffling part of this whole conundrum. And Michael said it. He said, you travel light years or thousands of light years, you come all the way to Earth, and then you skulk around in the shadows, and you deal with a tiny handful of the representatives of humanity, and you get from them something like agreements, but agreements due to what? Certainly not to reveal yourselves as one people openly expressing interest in another people 
at a common ordinary human or extraterrestrial level. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>